And so we're continuing our study from 1 Peter now into 2 Peter. And as I was processing this text this week, I thought of something because this is what's been captivating my mind recently, and that's football. If you didn't know, uh, football is, is rapidly approaching. I love football, college football, NFL. I don't watch arena, but I feel like I would like it if I watched it. It freaks me out that people are running before they hike the ball. Um, so I don't really know how it works, but it sounds great. It's football, so I'd probably be into it. And I really, really nerd out on fantasy football. Uh, it, so I actually have a few guys uh, in our Broward fantasy football league. It's kind of a big deal. And they showed up tonight, so I'm really happy that you guys are here. But fantasy football is like something that I... I I just think about all the time. I check the injury reports. I look at gossip. I know beat writers in different cities of the players that I choose because I need to make sure that I'm up on what's happening. I'm like a teenager following Justin Bieber or the Kardashians, but that's like fantasy football for me. So I'm, I'm really into it. I'm thinking about it. I'm so excited about it. And then I read this text this week, and God challenges me with something. Because in 2 Peter, after 1 Peter, Peter's been talking about thinking deeply. He's been saying, be watchful and mindful about what you consume. He's talking about submittance. He's talking about holding on to the promises of God. And then here in Second Peter, he transitions, and he's still bringing that theme, but he's making it even in a deeper fashion. In Second Peter 1, as we talked about last week, Pastor Felipe was talking about how Peter is emphasizing that the information, the content that we consume of the gospel, of God's word, and of truth shouldn't just stay in our minds, but should be pushed down to our hearts because our hearts are easily manipulated. We easily follow after things that are lies and are not true and are destructive. So we need to be mindful about pushing the truth of who God is and what he said to us that we've been called and we've been granted his righteousness because of Jesus into our hearts. And tonight, he says that you need to be mindful of what you consume because there's false teaching and false teachers all around you. And their beliefs and their ideas and the thoughts that they push forward are very destructive. But they come secretly, so they're hard to distinguish. And what was challenging to me is I thought about my week, I thought about my day, and I asked myself, do I really think deeply a lot? I mean, I think all the time, and I don't think there's anything wrong with being into fantasy football or whatever your hobby is for entertainment. But I think sometimes we can be people that think on a very surface level all the time, whether it's with our friends or with our spouse or in our community group or at church or when we read God's word, we just kind of read it, we check it off. We don't really think deeply because when we think deeply, it can become uncomfortable. It's hard work. It can confront things inside of us that we don't want confronted. And Peter tonight says that it's really important that we think deeply because we may be believing things that are destructive. And so tonight he's picking that up. Look, at, look for me in uh, verse 2 where he says, in Second Peter 2, he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. He says, false teachers will be among you. And this was shocking to me because I think that we think about false teachers and false prophets and heresies, all these things, like they're, they're really far away. They're really removed. It's some country we've never been to with some guy who says that he's God or he's Jesus in the flesh. And he has like, you know, 10 people that are following him. And everybody from the outside looking in says that guy is, is crazy. He's a lunatic. 
Or maybe we think that, that false teachers and false prophets are these cult leaders that have these little camps or these little outposts in the Midwest. I've never been to the Midwest, but I imagine like that's where they are. No offense if you're from there. I think they're in Kansas. That's, I have no idea how to imagine that. It's just flat in my mind, which apparently I think it is. But they're out there. They're in this little compound. And everybody from the outside looking in says those people are crazy. And they feel sad for the followers, right? Like, man, how are they believing this guy or this woman and what they're saying? Maybe in our context, we think of false teaching or false prophets as those that push forward or believe Santeria or voodoo, right? These religions that have taken parts of the Bible and they've mixed them together with other belief systems and other religions and created this, you know, amalgamation that's very dangerous. And we would look at it and we would say, that's false teaching. Those people are false teachers and false prophets. But look what Peter says. He says, false prophets arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. He's saying that there will be false teachers in your crowd. They will be among you. They will be around. You may be believing some of the things that they say. They will have a following. They will be attractive. They will be palatable. They will feel good to you. It's not as if they're just out there and they're easily distinguishable. They'll be around you. They'll be in the churches. They'll be your friends, right? It's kind of terrifying, the imagery that he presents here. And he says that the heresies that they put forward, their beliefs and their ideas will be brought secretly, meaning it will be hard to tell that their teachings are in fact false. See, a heresy is something that is profoundly at odds with what is accepted. And yet Peter says that these heresies that will be brought in will be disguised. They'll be brought in secretly. So it will be really difficult to notice that they are, in fact, heresies. I was thinking about this, and I thought about the 2008 collapse because I've been watching documentaries, and they have movies on, and all these things about how in the world did 2008 happen. And if you look at it, the majority of people, 90%, 95%, I don't know the number, never imagined it would happen, right? subprime mortgage loans and CDOs and all these other things that I have no idea what that means, but they're bad, and they started putting them all together, and everybody was happy. You're making money, everybody has a home, prices are going up. It would never crash, right? And only a few people noticed this was coming. It's the same thing that Peter's saying, right? A lot of people will follow after these false teachers. Nobody will think there's anything wrong with what they're saying, And only a few will think deeply and realize, whoa, whoa, something's off here. This isn't right. This isn't correct. And the reason that these things will be destructive is because it says that these false teachers have denied the master who bought them. They may deny, uh, they may believe that Jesus is their master. They may say that right on the surface. They may say that they're following after God, but in reality... They deny the master who bought them. They are essentially what scripture describes in other places. They are wolves in sheep's clothing, right? On the surface, they look like sheep, but inside, they're like wolves. And a lot of people will follow them. Why? Because it feels good. Because he says in, in the next verse, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth, truth will be blasphemed. And they're in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. 
and their destruction is not asleep. He says that these false teachers will have a following. And people will follow them because what they say feels good to you. It feels right. It connects with something where it's like, yeah, that, that sounds good. It sounds like it would make me happy. It would bring me comfort. You know, it may make my life better. I think that these are good teachings. But when you analyze deeply, when you really look at what they're saying, you realize that they've denied the master who's bought them. They are opposed to truth and they're greedy, meaning they're about themselves and their movement. They're not looking to partner. And so what Peter is doing here, it's really helpful, is he's building a guide for the church. He's building a guide for individual believers. He's saying, okay, here's what you look for when you're looking for false teaching. And he says a few things here, and he continues to go on. He says that they're going to be attractive, right? Because they're playing to your sensuality. They're going to feel good. It's going to feel right. It's going to, in your mind, you're going to think, this sounds like it's going to make my life better. It's going to bring prosperity to me. I'm going to be happy. But they've denied God. So what, mean, what he's saying is that when you look and you analyze this teaching, it's going to be very apparent that they don't believe that God controls their life. They control their own life. And they're going to tell you that you control your own life and you control your own destiny. And life is about you. It's not about surrendering to God. God bends to you. Scripture bends to you. Because it's about how you feel. And they're greedy, meaning they're not willing to partner. They don't want to work with other people. They're about their movement, their philosophy, their ministry, no desire to partner whatsoever. And all of these things will be true because it says that they've blasphemed the truth, which means they don't view scripture as the center of all things. It's not the foundation for them. See, scripture is something they use to promote and to give some power to the beliefs that they're pushing forward. So they take scripture when it's convenient, when it feels appropriate, when it feels good. The good parts of scripture, they'll use those to push forward their agenda. It's not the sinner. They've blasphemed truth. They pick and choose it as it feels appropriate. And I don't know about you, but when I started thinking through this, that that hit home a lot more. Because I know that there was a point in my life where that was true of me. I was following that idea of false teaching, that God is next to me, and he's like a genie. And he provides me the things that I want because life is all about me. It's about God bending to me, not me bending to God. And that's the big difference between false teachers and right and true doctrine and teaching. False teachers bend scripture to you. They don't call you to bend the scripture. If you don't like an aspect of scripture, if it's too hard to hear, it's not culturally acceptable, then they'll just manipulate it and make it feel good to you. They never ask you to bend the scripture unless maybe it's, to promote and get you to give, to promote their movement, right? But they bend scripture to you because it's all about you. Look what it says in verse 19, jump down. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. See, this is why it's so attractive because false teachers will always promise you a way to freedom. They will promise you freedom from debt, They will promise you freedom from limits. They will promise you freedom from being ordinary. They will promise you freedom to happiness and to comfort, to a better life. They will promise you freedom from bad relationships, from disease, from pain, from struggle. Everything that you don't want in life, they promise you freedom from that. So it's attractive. It feels good. Because if you're honest, who doesn't want freedom from that? 
I mean, who doesn't want freedom from debt and from limits and from struggle and from pain and from bad relationships? Uh, we all do. See, we believe in a God that promises us that he is powerful enough to remove and to bring us out of struggle, out of trial. He's, he's capable of bringing us out of a place of debt. He's capable of healing broken and bad relationships, but he doesn't promise that life for you. He's capable of, but it's not promised. We just talked about in, in 1 Peter 5 that God actually comes to us, and Peter is saying that God says suffering will be a part of your life. It should be expected. It will be a constant at different peaks and valleys in your life. And here's the reality of suffering. It's purposeful. And God is not removed from it. God is actually there in the midst. He is there next to you, caring for you, being compassionate. But he's never come to us and said, you know, becoming a Christian means that you get rich. Or becoming a Christian means that you get comfort. Or become a Christian and you get happy. Actually, scripture says that become a Christian and you get Christ. That's the gospel, that's scripture. You become a Christian and you get Jesus. You get his grace and you get the gospel rooted in your heart. And that is where you find freedom. It's a big difference. God, yes, can provide freedom from all of those things that are plaguing us, but trials are a part of life and they're purposeful. In 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter says that we can cast our anxieties on God, meaning that we are gonna have them because he cares for us. See, it never promises us freedom from all of those. If you just follow this teaching and do these five steps and do these things, then you're gonna have freedom from all the things you don't like in life. No, actually, we are free in Christ to place our struggle, our trials, our anxiety, our doubt, our confusion, our pain on Jesus. We, we're, we're given freedom to put it somewhere, but we're not f- given freedom to never experience it. And that's really important. He says here that uh, in verse 19, that for whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. And this is so vital to the whole point of what Peter is trying to push forward to us so we can think deeply. If you're overcome by anything but Jesus, to that thing you will be enslaved. See, truth and scripture would say you're to be overcome by Christ and enslaved to him, captivated by him, surrendered to him, bent to him. And what his word says, it doesn't bend to you, he may give you the desires of your heart, yes, as he roots and makes his desires your desires, but he never says, you know what, Carter, tell me all the things you want in your life, and I'm just going to give you all of those things, even if they're bad for you. I'm just going to give them because I'm your genie. He doesn't do that. He calls us to bend to him, and false teachers are not overcome by Jesus. They're overcome by the world. Really, they're overcome by themselves. So what they promise and what they think matters in life is profit and possessions, is getting the dreams and the pursuits that you want and making sure that you can achieve all those things. What do you want to achieve? Write them on a list. God will give that to you. It may be in your face or it may be subtle, but it is a focus on the self because that is the most important thing to them. They're overcome by themselves and so what matters more than anything is not God, it's not surrendering to him and bending to his word. It is you and how you feel and what feels right because if it feels right, then it must be right. And he says this in verse 20 through 22 about these false teachers. He says, for it after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse 
than the first. And this is important because he's saying that these false teachers know the Bible. They know who Jesus is. They've studied it. They can hold their own in a Bible study. But they have not been overcome by him. They have been overcome by the world. They have been overcome by themselves. You may go on their Instagram and it may say Christian in their tagline. You may be in a community group or a Bible study and they may know a lot of stuff about scripture. Maybe they've memorized some of it. Here's a scary one. Their vocation may be pastor, but they are not overcome by Christ. They're overcome by themselves and the defilements of the world, he says. And he says that the the former state is much better than the last, meaning the place where they didn't know who God was, they didn't study his word, they didn't know much about the gospel and scripture, that state is better than the state that they're in now, which is they know the facts, but they're all here. And so they use the facts to push forward their own agenda for what they want out of life. They've never seeped down into their heart. And that's what he says here. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. And this, this is where Peter gets real. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. And here, this is important. Here's what he says. It's not that they became a believer they became a Christian, they really believed, and then they walked away from the faith. The reality is that they were never overcome by Jesus. They, they had all the knowledge, they had the facts, they had been in all these Bible studies, they've attended church, maybe that's their vocation, whatever it may be, they know it. They have it here. But the world has always been number one. They have always been number one. They've never been surrendered. They've never been captivated by the gospel. They've never said, God, I'm going to bend to you and your truth. It's always been in their head. Because he says that the dog returns to its own vomit. And that's why it's so dangerous. And that's why it's so dangerous to follow after those realities. Because they're preying on your selfishness, they're preying on your ego, they're preying on your feelings, and they're telling you that you are the most important person in the world. And you may be sitting here and thinking, okay, great, Carter. Um, How in the world does this affect me at all? Well, I think it's really important that we take a moment and say, you're not removed from false teaching just because you may not go to a place that is pushing forward false teaching, or maybe you read, you know, you, you really know who you're supposed to read when you buy Christian books, or your community group is wonderful when everyone's great, because there's false teaching all around us. Peter says it's among you. And I, I want to kind of ex- examine and, and talk about what that looks like for each of us, including myself, by looking at the spirituality movement in our country. And I want to talk about yoga, I've talked about this before. I know like 90% of you in this room do yoga because like everyone in the world does yoga now. And I want to say this very clearly. I don't think it's wrong if you do yoga, okay? So it's not bad if you do yoga. You don't need to be like, oh my gosh, I just got out of church and I'm not, like, I'm not supposed to do yoga. I'm like a bad Christian. See, I don't do yoga because I'm 10 inches away from my toes. I've told you that. And if I did the praying dog, bird, swan thing, my legs would break and I'd die. So that's why I don't do yoga. It's impossible for me to do it. And I... I tried it one time in P90X, and I was like, this was an hour and 45 minutes for me to stand on a foot and like stretch out like a weird tree? I don't know. I can't do it. But if you do it, more power to you. 
But see, it, what's interesting to me is yoga is everywhere. Like you walk by a park, there's people doing all these things and so many pictures of people doing this and you know, all these things. And the growth is astounding in the U.S. In the last couple of years, yoga has doubled in terms of people that are consistently and continually practicing yoga. And here are some statistics that I saw was pretty interesting. So in the next year, in this year, there will be 80 million people in the U.S. that do yoga. I mean, like five years ago, I didn't even know what yoga was. And now there's 80 million people that are practicing yoga. And it says 60% of the people do it for flexibility. 55% do it for stress relief. And then a lesser percentage for health or for fitness. And a fair amount of percentage for relaxation. And, and, and a lower percentage of people are doing it as like a, a spiritual, it's their faith, it's their belief. It's what they're following after. But studies show that the majority of people that practice yoga practice it not because it's a great exercise, but because it makes them feel good. It's a mind and body therapy. There's this guy, never met him. I'm going to try to pronounce his name. Sadhguru. He's a mystic, and he likes yoga a lot. Here's what he says. If you're willing to read this physical body, everything, how this cosmos evolved from nothingness to this point, is written into this body. Yoga is a way of opening up that memory and trying to restructure this life towards an ultimate possibility. It is very subtle and a scientific process. See, yoga has grown in the U.S. to be a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar company and practice, not because it's a great exercise. And it may be a great exercise, but there are better exercises. I mean, maybe it's great for flex, but I've never done it, so maybe it's unbelievable. But the, the main reason it's grown by most studies is because it feels good. It feels good to you. And I'm, again, I'm not saying it's wrong if you do it because it feels good, but it, but it shows us something about our cultural norm. What is true for us is that we like things that make us feel good. We like when we're able to pick and choose and kind of make our life and our belief system the way that feels right. We like to be, we're dominated by feelings. Our life is dominated by making decisions on what feels good, which means on some level we're opposed to truth because truth is not always comfortable and it doesn't always feel good. So we have to analyze our own thoughts and our own life as we live. And one of the things about yoga that's interesting is that below yoga, there are beliefs, right? About who you are, the way to peace, how, how, your, how your life is constructed and how you're to live to have an enjoyable and happy life. There are beliefs below it. But the reason we like it is because if you don't want them, you don't have to take them. If yoga is just exercise or fitness or flexibility for me, you can just take that part of yoga. You don't have to bring the spiritual piece in. You don't have to do the whole, I don't the om and this thing. You don't have to do any of that. You can just use it as an exercise to get flexible and to get healthy. You can take the aspect of it that feels right to you. You want it for relaxation, stress relief? Take that. You want it for exercise and health? Take that. You want it to be your spiritual connection to something deeper inside of yourself? Take that. This is why we're resistant to institutions, right? Institutions like the church, healthy gospel-centered churches, are telling you you're not allowed to pick and choose. Here's what truth is. Scripture does not give us the basis to pick and choose. And that's hard for us because we like to pick and choose. 
So here are some questions, I think, to spot false teaching when you're around it or maybe in your own life. Is the teaching seeking to fit Christianity into your life to where it feels good? Not where it's true and it's what God's word says, but you're taking what you're reading, you're taking truth and you're manipulating it so it fits into your life in the way that feels comfortable. Is doctrine or is scripture being reinterpreted in light of the cultural moment? Because what is true now culturally must be true and so we use that to reinterpret everything that we read. And is faith more about how you feel than what you know? That's an important one. Is faith more about how you feel than what you know to be true? And maybe you've heard people talk like this. Maybe you've talked like this. I know that one point in my life I spoke like this, which was this. I don't really like how that verse or that chapter makes me feel. I I have a really hard time believing in a God that would do that. I have a really hard time believing in a God that would command me to do this. Or I really like that church because it makes me feel good. I like that pastor because I walk away feeling better about myself. So much of what we believe and we bring into the equation is how we feel, not what we think. Now, I want to say that Christianity is not opposed to feeling. That's really important. There are all sorts of feelings that arise because of faith. You may listen to a sermon. It may powerfully connect with you. You may sing the songs of worship. You may sense the Holy Spirit as he, as he speaks to you, as you're singing words, knowing that God is listening. You may pray and feel the presence of God, that he has compassion on you. You may serve others and it feels good. You may be in a community group where you're connecting and, and growing together around God's word and it brings you joy and there's positivity. There's all types of feelings and feelings are a part of our faith because God has made us in his image and we're feeling creatures. But our faith is not based on emotion. It's not based on emotion so I'll explain to you kind of what we do here on Sunday night. From the call to worship, to the songs that we choose, to the prayers that we pray, to the way that we think about communicating a text, none of it is done to manipulate you emotionally. It's not, and not to say that you won't feel emotions, but it's not done to manipulate you emotionally. We look at the service and we say, okay, there's, we have a moment to host a time where we can come before God and praise him and worship him and learn from his word. And we put scripture as the backbone and underneath everything that we do, we try to do it to the best of our ability, even though it's always going to be not good enough for God. And we want to gather together as one body and we want to ask God to be here in this place so that as we sing together and as we pray and as we listen to his word, the Holy Spirit might move in you and move us together as a church. So you may sing and be moved to tears or to laughter or to joy because of what the Holy Spirit's doing. And you may feel, you may hear a sermon and it may be moving to you emotionally. You may pray and it, something may connect, but see, that's the Holy Spirit. We're not trying to manipulate that in you. Because our faith is not based on emotion. Emotion is a part of it. It's based on facts. It's based on truth of who God is. And see, here's the difference between false teaching and right teaching. False teaching focuses on how you feel, and right teaching focuses on the Bible, regardless of how you feel. You may not like it. False teaching will focus on you, not God. It's about you, It's really easy to spot when you look at it like that. 
but it's attractive to us because we like to feel good. We like to be the master of our own destiny, right? Sophocles, this ancient philosopher, says something that I think is, it's like the, it's the, it's the uh, tagline for our culture. What people believe prevails over truth. Think about that. What people believe prevails over truth. So what do you think, what you feel, what's right to you, stands above and over truth. There's a quote that I I thought was interesting, and I think a lot of us have been at this place, or maybe we still are, or we wrestle with it. Uh, Russell Brand says this. I think this is our cultural truth right now. He says, I think if people have some yearning or discontentment or having some itchy irritability, then it might be because they're not looking in the right direction for a solution. They should look within. And within them, there's a limitless, infinite capacity for bliss to connection to higher things. See, this is our cultural truth. You have yearning, you're feeling discontent, you're unsatisfied, you're unfulfilled. Where's the solution? Where's the answer? Well, it's just inside of you. You just need to dig it out, right? You need to find fulfillment, find positivity, find truth, whatever is going to work to make you feel better. It's inside of you. Just go digging. And it's interesting because every other place in life we look out. You're sick, you go to the doctor, which is like half of you here, right? You want to be good at music or you want to be good at athletics, you go to a teacher, a trainer, you practice. You, you want to grow in knowledge, you go to a book or you go to a teacher. You have an addiction, you go to rehab, you go to a group. You have somebody come alongside you to help you and help reframe how you're thinking. Everything else in life, we go somewhere else for a solution. And for some reason, culturally, we have said, well, that's true, yeah, but spirituality is different. Spirituality is just inside of you. You just have to go digging and you'll find it. See, I think the reason that that is true now is because we're afraid to look out in our faith. And even those of us here that have faith, sometimes there are aspects of life that we're afraid to look out. And I think there's two reasons. There's probably many, many more, but I think there's two reasons. One, we're afraid of what we'll discover. Because we know that when we go looking for truth, When we find truth, most likely it will cause us to have to reorient our lives, to look at our dreams and our pursuits and really ask, are we living well in light of truth? We'll have to bend to it. And that's uncomfortable. So we may not go looking for it. Or false teachers are attractive because they say, you don't have to do that. You don't have to change your life. Your life is perfect, and what you want, God wants to come alongside you, and he just wants to make everything better. He wants to fulfill everything that you have. He's just right next to you like a little genie. Just go ask him, and he'll do it. Right? Or, maybe the other reason we're afraid to look out for truth is what it says in the front of your worship program. G.K. Chesterton says this, The traveler sees what he sees. The tourist sees what he has come to see. We're more tourist than traveler, Right? We have all these presuppositions, we have these assumptions, we have these things that we believe are true about our life and what's going to make us happy and fulfilled, what's going to fix the yearning, what's going to create a good life. And so we come to truth, or we come to church, or we come to God's word, and we see what we've planned on seeing. 
We come to it and we already know what we're going to see, so that's what we see. And if we don't like what we see, then our assumptions and our suspicions are confirmed. And so we push it aside. We're tourists. We're not travelers going to look. We're tourists going to see what we've come to see. And I think that what happens is, um, this causes indifference to us. And it gives us the ability to find freedom in the way that we want. And I know this was true of me. I, I grew up... Um, thinking that the church was a social construction and I saw it as a country club where a bunch of people did whatever they wanted in their lives and they came on Sunday to pay dues and to save face. But they're all hypocrites. And so I liked part of it though because the church I was a part of told me, hey listen, God is like a dream maker. It's like a dream catcher, but then he's gonna make them too. It's like, wow, that's awesome. So God wants to just fulfill my entire life and he wants to just bend to me. This sounds awesome, sounds wonderful. So what that created in me was the ability to create my own religion. I'll take a little bit of this part of God, a little bit of this part of what I want, a little bit of this part of culture, and I'll mix them together and then I'll feel good about myself because I feel like I'm living out my religion, my belief system. And truth is very different than that, right? Truth looks at us and it says, here it is. You're called to bend to it. It may hurt. It may not be comfortable. But this is truth. And it's difficult sometimes to swallow. And it's not as attractive. Look what it says in verse 4. I don't know if you heard this when Maria Claire was reading, but... You're reading this, and maybe you did your personal worship, you'd be like, oh my gosh, this is, whew. Verse four, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, and if he did not spare the ancient world, but he preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And in verse 9, if he did all of these things, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. You read that and you're like, that's a little uncomfortable. You know, like I, I've always wondered why we tell our kids and we make Noah's Ark like this cute little thing and they wear t-shirts with the animals on it. It's like God wiped out the whole world. And we're like, you know, Noah bought some animals in a boat and they floated around. And you're like, wow, this is amazing. I want to be Noah for Halloween. Right? Or you look at Sodom and Gomorrah where God looks at a city that is unrighteous and ungodly and he only saves one family. Wipes it out, turns it to ashes. Or the concept of hell. That's uncomfortable. Right? Gloomy chains and darkness. See, false teaching denies the fact that we are bought, which means it denies the fact that we are called to surrender to who God is in his word. So if something's uncomfortable, just move it over here. And don't deal with it. Because God wants to make your life better and bend to you. And truth is completely different. Truth tells you here it is. It's uncomfortable and it's painful sometimes, but it's true. And the reality is, is that truth is the only thing that can change us. It's the only thing that can bring rescue to us. So I think when you begin to survey all of the solutions that are out there to the yearning, to the being unfulfilled, 
When I was in college, I studied religions. I was studying all the major religions. And, and when you look at them all, they all crumble down. And only one thing stands, and it's God's word. It's the only thing that stands. But it's difficult sometimes to bend to because it doesn't always feel good. But see, here's the gospel. Here's truth. God knows our yearning. He knows our discontentment. He knows our desire to elevate ourselves over everything and everyone. And he came for us. He came into our mess to redeem our mess. And he lived a life that we could never live, which is a perfect life. And he died on the cross to bear the burden of our sin and the consequence of our sin, which is death itself. See, we, we reject God. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. We believe that we can have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. We can make our own religion, be God for ourselves. And our sin deserves death. And yet Jesus took that for us on the cross. He was buried in the tomb, and three days later, he rose to prove himself victorious. And I was thinking about this week, like, imagine going to a friend's house. It's immaculate. It's perfect. It's beautiful. They got great art and nice modern furniture. And they go, they, they leave the house for a second, and you just, like, go nuts. You start flipping the furniture over. You're just drawing on the walls. You're pulling raccoons. By the way, where are raccoons during the day? No idea. But you find them. You bring them in. They're going nuts. They're just destroying the whole house. And then your friend comes home. And he looks at you and he says, hey, take a seat real quick. Starts cleaning it all up. Puts the furniture back over, cleans the walls, gets the raccoon out. And it looks perfect and immaculate, clean. And you're like nervous. You know? And then he looks at you and he says, hey, will you move in? Will you, you know, become a part of my family? See, that's a crude example, but that's the gospel, right? We made a mess of things. And God came into our mess and he cleaned it up for us and he paid it. And then he looks at us and he says, can you want to come into my house? Do you want to be in relationship with me? Do you want to be part of my family? See, that's truth and that's grace. And that's what we're called to bend to. And false teachers will say, nah, that's, that's not it. See, here's the gospel. Jesus lived, he died, and he rose so that you might live for him, die to yourself, and rise to eternal life. Here's what false teachers say, and here's what can flood our minds as Christians. Jesus lived, died, and he rose, so that you might live for yourself, die to anything holding you back, and rise to prosperity and good vibes, because that's what life is about, right? False teaching is false. It's attractive, it strokes your ego, it feels good. It puts you in control, but it's destructive. It's so destructive. And the gospel and God's word is the only thing that's true. There are parts of it that can be hard to swallow. It can be painful, but it's true. And it's the only thing that will change you. It's the only thing that will bring joy and freedom and peace and hope and all those things that you're yearning for. It is the only thing. And here's the truth. In the midst of our pain and our struggle and trials that we will endure, we will face in life, Peter says, that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He's next to us. He's compassionate. So my prayer for you, and it's been my prayer for myself this week, is verse 19. It says, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And the reason that's my prayer is that may we be a people, may we be a church and a family that's overcome by the gospel. 
It's overcome by grace that Jesus has cleaned up our mess and purchased our life and called us to be a part of his home. And may we look now in his family and say, okay, how does this family operate? I'll bend to that because we're overcome by you, Jesus. Let's pray.